Thank you so much. Church, please go ahead and have a seat. That last song we sang, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's actually a great song leading into today's sermon because the topic of the sermon is the exact opposite of that. Sinful us versus a holy God. He is amazing. In Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice, there's a clownish character called Lancelot, and in scene two, act two, he encounters his blind father. Being blind, Lancelot's father doesn't even recognize his own son, but in the conversation asks him how his son is doing. Well, Lancelot, if you know the play, he decides to play a rather cruel trick on his own father and tells him that his son is dead. After that, he actually tries to convince the poor old man that, no, no, he really is his son. And there's an exchange that goes on, and within that exchange, Lancelot says this, Truth will come to light. Murder cannot be hid for long. A man's son, maybe, but in the end truth will out. You've probably heard that phrase, truth will out. It's very popular, especially in England. And it's actually been traced back to this play, The Merchant of Venice, whether it was something Shakespeare actually came up with or whether he incorporated something that was already circulating, we don't know. But they can trace it through history back to this play, truth will out. And the meaning is plain. It's the truth is going to be made known. It can't be hidden forever. Light's going to shine on whatever's trying to be hidden. Well, in our text today, we're going to see that very same principle at work, but I want to put a little spin on it. We're going to see this morning, sin will out. Sin will come to light. Sin will be made known. Sin will not be hidden forever. Sin will out. I want to invite you to turn, if you haven't already, to chapter 7 of the book of Esther. Last time, we saw Haman utterly humiliated because he had to honor Mordecai, the man he loathed. And as Haman was relaying what had happened to him to his wife and his friends, you might remember, they casually commented, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Then the last thing that we read last week was verse 14 of chapter 6, which says, while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So Haman is hurried off after this time of humiliation, and it's possible that before he could even catch his breath, before he could really overcome this humiliation, he's hurried off to this second feast Quite possibly, he's emotionally shaken. And we pick up the story in chapter 7. The text will be on the screen behind me, but you can follow along in your Bibles. Either way, follow along with me as I read. So the king and Haman went in to the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, 
Let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been merely sold as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Your first point this morning is this. Sin can't ultimately hide. Sin can't ultimately hide. Sin will out. You'll remember a few weeks back that Esther approached the king, risked her own life, and was granted favor. The king asked her what she desired at that point, but she delayed in telling him. Instead, she invited the king and Haman to a feast, her first feast. At that feast, the king again asked her what she wanted, but she delayed a second time and invited them to another feast, this feast that we're reading about today. And at this feast, for the third time, the king asked Esther, what does she want? He's well aware that she desires something. There's something in her soul that drove her to risk her life by approaching the king. And he's known all along that there's something she wants. And you may remember from the last feast, she had promised that she would reveal her desire. And we finally get to it this morning. Look with me again at verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. You might recognize that Esther starts her answer just as before, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, but then she diverts from that protocol and finally gives her full answer. Note that the king in verse two said, what is your wish and what is your request? Now he's really just asking for one thing, even though that kind of comes off as two things there, your wish and request. It's really two words referring to the same thing, If he was to say it bluntly, he would just say, what do you want? What is your wish? What is your request? Now, Esther answers in a twofold way, just like the king asks in a twofold way. She says, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. She's really just saying one thing there, but she answers just like the king in a twofold way. She's trying to save the life of her people. People, What Esther is also doing here is she's identifying with her people. She's identifying with them. She hasn't mentioned them by name, the Jews, but she's identifying herself with them. She's in effect saying, what happens to me happens to them, or what happens to them rather happens to me. Now this should remind us of her decision that she made in chapter four. You remember when she chose to risk her life, when she finally submitted to what Mordecai was urging her to do, she asked Mordecai to take the Jews from Susa and hold a fast, and she was gonna hold a fast. In the same way, she was identifying with her people then, almost like she was saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to stand with my people, the Jews. Come what may. Now note what she says in verse four. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now the being sold there, that's the reference to Haman's offer to have the Jews killed for 10,000 talents of silver. You might remember that. We read about that in chapter 3. But note also 
she quotes Haman's edict. This is word for word. She quotes it back to them. She uses the same words to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Those were the exact words written in the edict in chapter 3. Now, at, that wor- at those words, it's interesting, as we read the text, it appears that the king gives no sign of recognition. It's like he's for- completely forgotten. It's possible that the edict of this genocide is entirely unimportant to the king. It's possible that it hasn't even crossed his mind since Haman brought it to him in chapter 3. But I wonder, and this is only speculation, I wonder if Haman started sweating bullets. Now, what is going on here in the latter part of verse 4? Do you see that? If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Now, why is she bringing up this, this issue of slavery? It, it wasn't even a consideration before. Why is she even talking that or bringing it up? Well, you'll remember that Esther delayed in asking for her request. She was being clever. She was gaining the king's and Haman's confidence by inviting them to feasts. She's still having to be clever here. In fact, she has to be delicate with her words. Because it wasn't just Haman who wrote the edict to destroy the Jews. The king approved of the edict. She has to maneuver her words so that she doesn't inadvertently accuse the king. So she's appealing to the king by placing herself and her people in a subservient position. You know, I wouldn't have bothered you if it was a mere matter of slavery. You're too important for that kind of thing. See, by bringing this idea to the Jews, by by being put into slavery, she's communicating that her request is big enough to bother the king. Perhaps you have a boss and you know that there are certain matters that are big enough in your job that you have to bring to your boss because it's above your pay grade. But there are other matters that come your way that you know these are just too small. These are things I need to deal with. And if you were to bring them to your boss, he would probably say something like, why are you bothering me with this? This is your job. Kind of a similar idea there. By wording her request this way, she's acknowledging that the king is of great importance and some matters need to be brought to him. She's elevating and respecting his position. Now read along with me in verse five. Then King Ahasuerus said to the queen, who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. So the king outright asks, who is it? Now, it's interesting, the Hebrew language here is, is really, really interesting. You, you can't capture this in the English translation. It's written in kind of a staccato rhythm effect, almost like he's biting off the words in anger. It's like, who is he and where is he? It's obvious from the way it's written, he's angry. He flips and his anger starts right at this moment. Now, King Ahasuerus, we know from history that he was a man given to anger. It didn't take much to set him off. In fact, there's a story from history where a loyal citizen went to King Ahasuerus to ask if his son, the eldest of his five sons, could be excused from active war duty in order to come home and care for him, the aging father. In response, Ahasuerus had the eldest son cut in half. 
He was unpredictable, and his anger would just erupt, which, by the way, should give us a greater appreciation for what Esther did when she went to the king back in chapter 5. So the king's anger flares up here, and he asks her, who is he and where is he? Here's her moment. Everything that she's been doing has been leading up to this moment, and her response is fascinating. She replies with the same kind of staccato as the king. Look at verse 6. And Esther said, a foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. So you can kind of picture this in your mind where the king is, who is he and where is he? She replies, a foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Her anger comes out here too. And again, what we see from her response here is that she's transforming again. She's growing again throughout the story. She's gone from the compliant girl to the daring queen and now to the bold accuser. Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Boom. What a terror would it be to have the anger of the king and the queen directed at you. Now, Haman had unwittingly threatened the queen's life. But this is why Esther had been made queen. Who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And suddenly by stating this, she reveals who she is. She's a Jew. At least Haman picks up on that. She's a Jew. And you can see here, both from her cleverness and the perfection of God's timing, the moment was right. The king was ready to grant her wish, and Haman was completely thrown off by how this developed and possibly still thrown off from the events in the previous chapter. The queen was of the people he had dared to try to annihilate. No wonder he was terrified. Sin will out. Sin can't ultimately hide. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden fail in Genesis 3. They fall, and what do they do next? They hide, or they try to. Achan tried to hide what he'd stolen from the spoils of Jericho. David sleeps with Bathsheba, she gets pregnant, then what does he do? He tries to cover it up. Now, none of these plans worked very well, did they? God found Adam and Eve. Well, he, always, he knew where they were. Achan was discovered and his whole family perished. David was confronted by Nathan. Beloved, you can't ultimately hide your sin. Maybe for a time, but sin will out. One way or another, it's going to come out. By the way, let's, let's just stop and define sin for a moment. What is sin? I like this definition by John Piper. You can read this on the screen. Sinning is any feeling or thought or speech or action that comes from a heart that does not treasure God over all other things. Sin is anything that we love more than God. Even good things. Anything that we love more than God is sin. Anything that we treasure more than God is sin. That's what sin is. Sin is not primarily actions, though it is actions. And we often think of sin in the way of action. But it's not primarily action. It starts in the heart. It's something that we treasure. Anything that we treasure above God 
And whatever those things are that we treasure above, above God, they won't remain hidden. Isaiah 29, 15 reads like this, woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord and whose deeds are done in a dark place. And they say, who sees us or who knows us? You can't hide your sin from God. Sin will out. When I was in high school, I was homeschooled and once in my English work, I was supposed to write an essay. Guess what? I didn't do it. And I hid it from my mom successfully for a few years. When I was in college, I get a phone call from my mom. Guess what she discovered? There was work I had never done. It didn't stay hidden. June 17th, 1972. Five people break into the Democratic National Committee headquarters at the Washington, D.C. Watergate office building. They tried to cover that up. But despite how elaborate their cover-up was, eventually it went all the way to President Nixon. If the president can't get away with it, what makes you think you can? My friends, if you're in a pattern of sin, if something has your heart, if you've constructed some elaborate plan to keep some sinful part of your life a secret, it's going to come out. It will. I have a friend and mentor I knew in high school and all through college. And for years, he had a secret addiction to pornography. Years. Confessing Christian. Finally, it came out. And yes, there was humiliation. Yes, there was deep pain in his life and in his family's life. But shortly after that, I saw a testimony of him. And he remarked in that testimony how grateful he was that God had revealed that sin. Because what resulted was freedom. God loved him so much that he revealed this hidden addiction and the result was a restored relationship with God. Why do we try to hide our sin? Why do we keep these things secret? After all, if you believe in Jesus, you know God knows. You know it. And yet we still try to hide. Why? Well, fear, of course, Shame, absolutely. But you know something? We chase sin and we hide sin because we love it. We buy into the lie that it will satisfy. We pursue our sin because it promises to gratify our souls. But friends, that's a lie. Sin is enjoyable for a moment, absolutely. Even the Bible says that. But it can't Fill the void in your heart. It promises much and delivers little or nothing. So let me challenge you. Don't listen to the lie. Don't hide your sins. Rather, confess your sins. Now, I'm not talking about going to a confessional and telling a priest all your sins. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is get alone with God 
Sin is ultimately against God. David writes in Psalm 51.4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Get alone with God and confess your sins. And as awkward and as uncomfortable as it can be, be specific. Be specific with the Lord and let him work on your hearts. Now we may ask, well, what about confessing sins to other people? I want to say two things about that. First of all, if you've sinned against someone, absolutely. If you've lied to someone, if you've yelled, if you hurt, yes, confess that. Restore that relationship. We're going to live with each other for eternity if you're a believer in Jesus. Let's build into that relationship now. Restore those relationships. And let me add a second thing. Maybe your sin doesn't directly affect someone, although all sin affects people. Maybe you're caught in some pattern of sin. Maybe you're caught in some kind of sin addiction like my friend. And in that case, let me just say, get help. Get help. You can't break those patterns of sin on your own. You can't do it. And yes, that may be humiliating. That may be painful. That might lead with it a whole host of consequences. But the sweet freedom that awaits you from a restored relationship with Jesus is worth it. It's going to come out at some point. Confess it now. And if you don't know where to start on that, let me suggest your small group, your breakout, men with other men, women with other women, start there. Just, I need help. Please pray for me. Please help me. Sin can't ultimately hide. Here's your second point from our text this morning. Sin leads to desperation. Sin leads to desperation. Follow along as I read. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. If the king was angry when he learned that his queen was threatened, his anger is through the roof at this point. In fact, he up and leaves. He up and leaves when Esther reveals that it's Haman. Why? Well, we know from the text he's angry. And we can kind of see that he's probably drunk, if not a little bit fuzzy. And we can speculate that at this point he doesn't know what to do. Now, that's just speculation, but think with me. King Ahasuerus has never been able to make up his own mind. We've seen that all through the book. The author writes the king in such a way that he always runs to his advisors for help. He can't seem to make a decision on his own. And now he's just been told his second in command has manipulated him and cooked up this scheme to kill the Jews, which, by the way, includes his wife. Perhaps part of what's going on in the king is that he doesn't know what to do. And now his closest advisor can't help him, so he up and bolts in a rage to the garden. Now it's also possible that he could be pondering a new problem. He approved of this edict. 
he also condemned his queen to death. Unknowingly, yes, but he is still responsible. And Capstone, he can't rescind the edict. It's out there now. And there's nothing he can do about it. So it's possible that he's, he's pondering all this and what to do with the situation, his own involvement, and what do we do now? He has a problem. He has a problem with his second command. He has a problem with the overall edict. Part of his problem, though, is about to be solved. Look back with me. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. Haman knew the king. Haman knew him well. He could read him, and he knew that the king was angry at him. Now, Haman's options are limited here. He could try to follow the king out to the garden, you know, trying to explain everything. But what we know from history and what we've seen from Esther is that the king is volatile. That might be foolhardy, so he doesn't do that. He could have just tried to flee, but that would have definitely made him look guilty. And as we see in a few verses, there's others around. There's possibly guards, definitely eunuchs around, so he probably wouldn't have gotten far if he tried to run. So he does possibly the only thing that he thinks he can do. He appeals to the queen. Now, we don't know how much time elapses between verse 7 and verse 8. The king leaves, goes to the garden. How long was he out there? We don't know. What did Haman do in the meantime? Was he just pleading and pleading and pleading and, and kind of just built himself up as he's asking for, 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 for life here? We don't know. We don't know exactly what happened there. But what we see next in verse 8 is this. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. The king comes back. And what does he see? Haman falling on the couch where Esther was. Now that word falling here is deliberate. It, it, it means deliberately throwing oneself down. Haman's intentions, we know from the text, his intentions were to beg for his life. The king's angry. The queen's angry. They're angry at him. You know, we've seen all through this book, irony. There's so much irony in the book of Esther. And here's another place. Haman went after the Jews because Mordecai refused to bow or fall before him. Here, Haman is falling before a Jew and to add insult to injury before a woman. Similar to last week, this is another picture of how a person's best laid plans can be flipped in an instant. Haman's sin has caught up to him and there is no way out. And as if the situation could not get any worse, the king says, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? Now that word assault, by the way, that could also mean to molest or to violate. So you know what the king is thinking there. At this time, by the way, in history, people dined on couches. They would stretch themselves out, they'd prop themselves up on one arm, and they would eat with the other hands. And that's where Esther is. She's on her couch where she's been dining. Haman here violates protocol. He violates protocol. He was not permitted to approach the queen. Not at all. In fact, you wouldn't dare approach a member of the king's harem, much less the queen. There's historical evidence to suggest you would not have gone within seven steps of a member of the king's harem. If you saw a, per, a member of the king's harem come, you just give them a wide berth. That was protocol. 
Haman breaks protocol here by falling on the couch, desperate, begging for his life, and the king sees it. Now, it's interesting. One of two things is going on in the king's mind here. Either the king, being possibly inebriated, mistook Haman's actions for trying to molest the queen. That's possible. Or the king sees this, realizes that Haman is actually begging for his life. He realizes the truth, but he has an answer to part of his problem here. By accusing Haman of misconduct, he can punish his second-in-command. If the king was struggling with what to do about Haman, Haman gives the king a way out. Maybe he doesn't know what to do with this situation with the edict, but he certainly knows how to handle a man who attacked his queen. That problem is solved. The king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Now, covering the face is what they did to the dead or the condemned. The they here in that is probably a reference to the eunuchs, possibly even guards, And the irony here is very thick. The queen approached the king illegally and was was spared. Haman approaches the queen illegally and is sentenced to execution. Sin leads to desperation. Once sin is exposed, it is very common to react in desperation. Think of Adam and Eve. They sin. They realize they're naked. They try to sew fig leaves together to cover themselves. And have you ever wondered, where did they get the thread? Furthermore, God calls to them after they sin, and what do they do? They play the blame game. They try to hide it. They try to cover it. They're desperate. Sin will out, and sin leads to desperation. That desperation could, like, could look like trying to cover it up. It could look like blaming someone else. Or like Haman, it could look like doing something stupid and end up getting in more trouble. Ask yourself this question. Would Haman have been executed if he hadn't fallen on the couch of the queen? Maybe. Maybe he would have still been executed. The king was volatile, we know. But maybe not. Think about this. According to Persian law, when Haman came to the king to destroy the Jews, he hadn't done anything wrong. He'd done nothing illegal according to Persian law. Now, according to God's law, it's a different story. But according to Persian law, he hadn't done anything wrong. And we all know that Haman is sly. He could have simply talked his way out of it. Maybe. But his blunder in turning to the queen helped to seal his fate. Sin leads to desperation. And when we're caught, a lot of times we'll do something stupid to try and get out of it. Anyone ever watch Columbo? I love Columbo. If you don't know, Columbo was a detective show in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And he was this seemingly bumbling detective. He, he gave an air, he, he put on an act that he really didn't have it all together when the whole time he's outsmarting the murderer. Often at the end of the show, he would trap the murderer into revealing themselves. And they would be grasping at straws, trying to come up with some excuse. I remember one particular episode, Columbo 
had the police and the suspect and the suspect's wife all in the same room, and he showed them how the suspect was at the scene of the crime at the time of the crime. In desperation, the suspect turns to his wife and begs her, tell, tell the police, that, tell them that I was with you that night. He was trying to make her an alibi at the last moment when it was absolutely ridiculous and obvious that he was desperate, caught in the act. This is where you hear those phrases, you know, let me explain, or it's not what you think, when we really can't explain, and it is what we think. My brothers, my sisters, don't let it get to that point. Don't let your sin lead you to a point of desperation. Don't love your sin so much that you can't reveal it. Sin will out. Confess it now and let the sweet relief of God's grace flood in. Sin can't ultimately hide. Sin leads to desperation. And our final point this morning, sin condemns the sinner. Sin condemns the sinner. Follow along as I read. Verse nine, Harbona, one of, the, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. You know, we like to see the villain fall. I'd hate to pay money to go see a movie and the villain wins. But let's be honest. This is tragic. This really happened. I believe the Bible is written of actual historical events. I believe that. I believe what happened in the book of Esther really happened. And it's tragic. Harbona, mentioned here in verse 9, <clears throat> excuse me, is actually mentioned in the list of the king's eunuchs in chapter 1. <clears throat> excuse me. And it is he, in the absence of the king's advisors, who speaks up. He further condemns Haman by pointing out to the king that the gallows that Haman had set up was meant for the man who had saved the king's life, Mordecai. It appears from the text that the king had no knowledge of the gallows. Maybe, maybe not. But it wasn't hard for him at that point to make up his mind. Hang him on that. And it's tragic, yes. But you know, it's also poetic justice. The fall predicted by Haman's wife in chapter 6 comes full circle. Haman went after Mordecai and the Jews, tried to execute Mordecai, set up a pole for Mordecai for public display, and yet he himself was executed on that same pole. The irony is twofold. Haman is impaled on the pole he set up for Mordecai for the crime of not bowing. Haman is impaled on the very same pole for a crime he didn't commit. He was executed for the appearance of molesting the queen, but he hadn't actually done that, and nor was that his intention. However, 
Haman's elaborate scheme to destroy the Jews led him to this point. So he did die for his sins, just maybe not for the sin that he'd been accused of. Proverbs 26, 27 reads, whoever digs a pit will fall into it and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. Had Haman dug a pit? Yes, he had. Had he rolled a stone? Yes, he had. And it came back on him. Josephus, a Jewish historian, says of Haman, thereby he teaches others this lesson, that what mischief anyone prepares attains another. He, without knowing of it, first contrives it against himself. Similarly, John Calvin writes, man falls according as God's provision ordains, but he falls by his own fault. It was the providence of God, the unseen work of God's hands behind all this that led to this moment. And yet, Haman is totally responsible for his own actions. And that's what sin does. It condemns the sinner. Our own sin, that thing that we chase for our own pleasure in the end, dooms us. Haman here is a picture of human depravity. Haman reveals the heart in all of us that loves sin and tries to hide it. Put bluntly, there's a little Haman inside all of us. I know that hurts your feelings. It hurts mine too. But we're all running around in this life trying to find ways to please ourselves, trying to make life about us, chasing our own sin. Haman is a picture of human depravity, but you know what? He also reveals our deepest need. We need a savior. Sin will out. The bad news is that Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all messed up. We're all broken. We're all in need of a Savior. And to make matters worse, Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Not only are we broken, but after all is said and done, we die. And hell awaits those without a Savior. That's the bad news. But the good news, the rest of Romans 6.23 tells us that the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Romans 10.9 tells us that if we confess with our mouths Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. See, Haman was hanged on a pole Jesus was nailed to a tree. Haman actually died for a crime he did not commit assaulting the queen. Haman was innocent of that. And so also was Jesus innocent. However, Haman was a sinner. As we have been reading, committing grievous crimes, planning grievous crimes, Jesus was not Though Haman died for a crime he did not commit, he did die for his sins, whereas Jesus died for your sins and for mine. Have you come to believe in this Jesus? 
What is the answer to all this sin we've been talking about? The gospel. Perhaps you're here and wondering, how do I get away from this? How do I stop loving the sin in my life? Well, I said it just a second ago. Jesus is offering you the free gift of salvation. Take it by faith. Repent of your sin. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. What if I am saved? What if I've already done that? You know, I still struggle with this sin stuff. I'm not perfect. I still pursue the very thing that I hate and I still try to hide it. What's the answer? The gospel. Church, repent of your sin. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise. But you wanna know something? It gets even better. I know I've been talking a lot about sin this morning. And it's because of sin that some of you live with deep wounds. Wounds that others inflicted on you and wounds you may have inflicted on yourself. And the last thing that I want to do is cause even more guilt. That's the last thing I want to do. Because if you've embraced Christ, that guilt is gone. Be comforted. You stand before him clothed in righteousness. That's your identity. Child of God, sin is not your identity. Yes, we can still sin. Yes, we can still fall into patterns of sin. Yes, we can still fall under sin's addiction, but that's not your identity. Your identity is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and it's through the power of Jesus Christ that those things can be broken in your lives. The gospel is this. I am wretched, but I am loved. I am a sinner, but he made me a saint. I am despicable, but I am cherished by the Father. Dwell on that this week, church. Dwell on the gospel. Sin will out, but the gospel cleanses all sin. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't deserve that. We deserved hell. We deserved punishment. We deserved all those things. And yet because of your love, you came down and bore our sins on the cross so that any who turns to Jesus Christ will be saved. What a miraculous truth. But even greater than that, Jesus, those who call on your name, 
can have the sin patterns broken in their lives because the gospel is real. The gospel is true. The gospel is powerful. It can do things that we can't. So Jesus, come and do your work. Come and do your work in our hearts. Change us into your image more and more and more. For it's in the great and awesome name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.